Welcome to the Tournament Poker Edge podcast, brought to you by TournamentPokerEdge.com, the only podcast dedicated exclusively to poker tournament strategy. Now here's your host, Clayton Fletcher. Hello once again, everybody, and welcome to the Tournament Poker Edge podcast. I'm your host, Clayton Fletcher, here in New York City, where I am again preparing to return to my beloved Secaucus, New Jersey, a great commuter town in the great state of New Jersey, which offers uh, relatively low-priced hotel rooms and the opportunity to play legal regulated online poker right across the river from where I live. And the main event of the fall online poker championship or whatever the heck WSOP.com is calling it this week or this month. They seem to have an event every month. Uh, So this one I am planning to play in the main event. I believe it's a $500 buy-in. They've been getting pretty good numbers on this tournament series this month. So... I'm looking forward to playing. I have been playing in New Jersey a bit, and uh, the last week has been pretty brutal. I think I played 18 tournaments. Not all of them were part of this big series. Some of them were just like $20 daily deep stacks and whatever else is offered on the site. Uh, But 18 is 18, and I have no caches in my last 18 tournaments. Now, some of you out there may have never gone 18 tournaments in a row without cashing in any but due to my playing style this is far from a record I believe my record is 37 in a row without cashing which is actually kind of hard to do and it's getting harder to do now that the trend is towards more players being paid in each tournament field and it used to be the standard was always 10 percent right and then lately it's gone up to 15% or in some cases I've seen even a little more than 15% of the field getting paid. So to ever go 37 in a row again is uh, probably not going to happen, but given that I'm halfway there already, I wouldn't necessarily bet the farm against it. Uh, So hopefully I can right the ship. Uh, The cash games have been bailing me out a little bit. The Omaha is really sick, and so I've been really having fun with that whole thing uh but yeah it would be nice to cash in a tournament at some point in my life so maybe i'm just saving all my luck for the uh, main event this weekend we shall see but you know my spirits stay high i always have wild swings it's just you know when you play a loose aggressive style part of the deal is that you've got to be able to handle the roller coaster that comes with that especially when you play a lot of shorthanded cash games and of course multi-table tournaments in general there's just a lot of variance there and as we all know i'm not the best at paying attention to icm i always play for the win and so as a result i probably bust out on or near the bubble a lot more than you do so uh, it may sound crazy to go 18 or more tournaments without cashing but for me uh, it's not the first time And the odds are it will not be the last. And speaking of variants, our friends Daniel and Doug are now really in the heat of battle in this online, what has now become an online heads-up grudge match, as they're calling it. Now, I've checked out different streams. I watched Daniel's stream on GG Poker. I've watched Doug's stream on Upswing Poker. Without being able to see the cards, it's really tough to know exactly what's happening in this match just based on the commentary i mean of course you know they have really good announcers on basically all the streams people that know heads up and they understand kind of gto philosophy and stuff like that so it makes very little difference in my opinion which stream you tune in to watch because you're going to see the same thing on your screen just if you happen to have a preference for one commentator or another I mean, obviously, on the upswing stream, they are rooting very (laughs) adamantly and quite openly 
for Doug Polk. And you know what? It's his website. I mean, what would you expect? That they're going to be fair and uh, balanced and impartial when it's, you know, that's their boy. So, of course, they're they're rooting for him and cheering for him. Over on the GG stream, it's a little bit less partial. Uh, of course, Daniel is a sponsored pro uh, and actually a part owner, I believe, of GG Poker. So that would be the stream where they would root openly for him. But it, it, the vibe is a little bit more professional and at least at least giving the appearance of impartiality. But as for the analysis, I think it's it's fair to say whichever stream you decide to watch, you're going to get some good color commentary and analysis the best you can do when you can't actually see the cards. So even if I could see one player's cards, it's a lot easier for me to explain why one player or the other player is doing a given action. But not being able to see anyone's cards, then you're really just kind of blindly talking about general ranges. And when it comes to heads up, pretty much you play every hand or at least almost every hand before the flop. And it's always like a raise and then either a three bet or a call, it, it's very rare to raise and take it in a heads up match. I mean, maybe the very bottom of your range you could fold, but because the early streets in a heads up hand are so wide open, it becomes very hard to limit the possible two card combos that could be in either player's hands. So because of that, the best analysis you'll find is when a pot gets to the river and they can sort of pick apart the action that's taken place so far. Well, okay, Doug called a check raise on the turn, and now he's leading here on the river. He either has, you know, whatever. So he's polarizing himself, whatever the case may be. So those are the, the pots where those commentators really earn their money because once you get to 4th Street and beyond, it becomes more defined in terms of what story each player is trying to tell. So because of that, that's where those guys really earn their money. And I've learned a lot from watching some of the commentary, especially on those hands that do go to the river. And there's a decision of whether to call or raise or fold on the river. Those are the hands that have been the most eye-opening to me as far as for me trying to sharpen up my heads up, no limit hold'em game. I mean, it's not a game that I play very often, and when I do, it's usually in a tournament situation, which is very different from what we're watching in the cash game scenario, because when I get heads up in a tournament, we're almost always playing 20, 30 big blinds, because that's just how it is in tournaments. Maybe not heads up at the main event. <laughs> okay, if you're playing the World Series of Poker main event heads up, you'll have more than 20 blinds probably. At least the average would be much greater than that at the start of heads up. So uh, it's not really an apples to apples comparison. So, uh, oh, I wanted to point out, thank you guys, those of you who have chosen to troll me on Twitter. If, you, if you're not following this fascinating fiasco, uh, you really should be. But if you're not, uh, let me update you. Uh, as I'm recording this on Thursday, November 19th, they're actually playing Heads Up right now while I'm recording. And... Daniel is up about a buy-in, which puts him up five buy-ins total, about $200,000 for the match so far. Now, it's still relatively early. They've played about 3,000 hands of poker total, and they're almost definitely going to play 25,000 by the time all is said and done. Uh, there is a clause that says the player who's down after 12,500 hands is allowed to say, you know, uncle, <laughs> I give up. I don't want to lose any more money. I'm getting killed here. Uh, that clause was built in by Daniel because he wasn't sure whether he'd be able to keep up with Doug when they were negotiating the terms of this match. So uh, now that Daniel has a sizable lead, I don't, even if things go badly for him over the next week or two, I don't think that he it, it would get so bad that he'd actually consider throwing in the the towel, as it were, <laughs> waving the white flag in the middle. And there's a 0% chance of Polk doing that under any circumstances. I mean, he could be down $5 million after 12,000 hands, and he's going to continue playing, believe me. Uh, this is all about 
Doug and his ego. So many of you have opted to either openly or in my DMs. <laughs> Let me know that there, you want to have some fun with the fact that I'm losing this bet. So I, if you don't remember, I actually put money on Doug to win. I got four to one, and I think that's a very good price, or at least it was before Daniel had a, a five buy-in lead in the match. So uh, I, I'm not worried about this bet. I'm not happy that my boy is down a little bit. But, you know, on some level, I really don't care who wins this match. Yeah, it's not going to break the bank or something if I, if I lose this bet. And a part of me loves to root for the underdog. I mean, look, guys, I'm from Baltimore, okay? I grew up rooting for the Orioles. Of course, when I grew up rooting for them, they were a very good team. But for the last 20 years or so, except for a few flashes in the pan, I've been a fan of one of the worst sports franchises on earth. So uh, I always root for the underdog when it comes to baseball. So here I am, a part of me, secretly closet rooting for Daniel Negreanu because he is such an underdog in this match. And he's really done a good job so far of holding his own. I mean, obviously he put in some study, he put in some work. He's a little bit better at heads up than we thought he was. But it seems to me that he is basically off to a great start. Now that doesn't mean at all that he's not playing well because he clearly is. But there's also some luck in heads up, which could be that you just happen to have a very strong hand at a time when you're opponent had a very strong second best hand or you happen to make a call that was a 50-50 call and yeah this time you decided to call and your opponent was bluffing but it could have just as easily have gone the other way. Heads up is very close. The margins are really close. Uh, obviously over 25,000 hands these guys are going to get the same number of good hands and bad hands roughly and they should, it, things should even out as far as the all-in EV and the general, like who's running good on any given Wednesday, okay? So without being able to see every single hand, you know, to really look at the hand history, it's hard to say who's actually running better. And I don't believe that that hand history is being made public by either player. So yeah, when they're all-in, I think we get to see what everybody has, right? But I'm enjoying it. I like watching poker. I like when there are heroes and villains, winners and losers, someone to root for and against. And so I'm really digging into this challenge and I'm even enjoying watching online poker being played by just two players and I can't see anybody's cards. <laughs> so that tells you what a junkie I am. I'm into it. Okay, now I want to talk about the World Series of Poker main event. Okay, so how many World Series of Poker main events are we going to have this year? Uh, if you haven't heard, they are going to do a televised final table of an online tournament that is going to take place next month on WSOP.com. So, uh, I remember back in the summer, they had... A $5,000 main event with like 17 starting flights and you could buy into as many of them as you wanted. Uh, you know, the World Series of Poker main event, traditionally a freeze out. And so this tournament will be a freeze out. I think they're doing one in America and they're also doing another one somewhere else. So the person who won the what was called the main event over the summer is a little unhappy about this news because now he he's not the main event champion that he may have thought he was over the summer. I mean, of course, he still gets to keep all the money he won, but it's just a weird year. And the WSOP has been tasked with a pretty impossible job, to be honest. When they first made the decision back in the spring to cancel the events in Vegas this summer and move them to online, there was not a lot of information, or at least there was no consensus about the coronavirus, how long it would last, when we would have a vaccine, whether it would be gone at the end of the summer, what was going to happen. And so they told us back then, 
we're going to reschedule the WSOP events in Las Vegas sometime in the fall. Stay tuned. Okay, I remember getting that message. Well, now, as we've seen lately, cases of COVID are rising across the country, including in Nevada. And it would just be really irresponsible to try to have a World Series of Poker now that we're in the fall. Also, it's too late, so they would have had to plan it months ago. And it's just not happening. So the problem is, and here's where kind of seeing things from an entertainment perspective, I might have some insight into this that if you're watching and you're like, you know, why are they bothering to do this? And if you, if you haven't read about it, they're going to play online and then the final table is going to be live and broadcast on ESPN. And once the players get to a heads up situation, they're going to add a million dollars for the winner to the prize pool. And so that won't come out of player buy-ins. It's basically added money, a free roll, if you will, which is probably being done to entice people to play a $10,000 online tournament that might otherwise not play. So I don't know how many people will take it that way, but to me, that kind of added value is terrific. Also, it's a very low rake. So if you play on WSOP.com, it's going to be 9,600 plus 400, which I say is low rake because that might sound high to you, but believe it or not, it's the lowest that it's been in in my lifetime because it's normally 9,400 plus 600. And I think there's even an additional percentage taken out for the dealers. So because we don't have live dealers and because we don't have all of the uh, expenses, they have reduced the rake percentage. So this is all happening. Of course, you can only play in Nevada and New Jersey is going to be uh, Sunday, December 13th. And if you make it to day two, that's going to be December 14th. And if you are one of the final nine, you will meet up in Las Vegas at the Rio All Suites Hotel and Casino on the 28th. And there will be a televised final table with an extra million dollars provided by Caesars to the winner. So... I don't know. I mean, I have mixed feelings about this. I feel kind of bad for everybody else who already thought that they won the main event this year. Uh, there was another main event on GG Poker. That was the one with the you know 17 different uh, starting flights, and you could enter as many as you want. Um, so, yeah, I just... Uh, it's a little bit weird, but now let me give you my entertainment background perspective on this. There's a deal between Caesars Entertainment and Disney. Disney, of course, owns ESPN, and they have a deal to show poker events for a certain number of hours every year on the network. Well, there's been no poker content to give them as far as anything new. So if there is poker on ESPN these days, it's just been, you know, like last year's main event or some old main event. Maybe the year Jamie Gold won or something. Uh, So this helps to capitalize on that contract. So money has already been paid for these rights. And so you might as well try to get your money's worth. So that to me is factoring into why they're doing it this way. Uh, But yeah, you know, there was talk over the summer about all these summer bracelets being played online in only two states, cheapening the bracelet. And then they had, you know, they really built it as the main event. They later went back and said, no, 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 that was the online main event or the other one was the GG online main event or whatever. You know, it's just, like I said before, they kind of ran out of words to use. Like right now they have the fall online championship, but I think they they had a fall circuit event or something. So they're all very similar sounding. And in fairness, there's only so many words in English language for online poker championship or live poker championship and you see this with all the marketing of all the tournaments around the world you know mighty stack almighty stack mega stack deep stack they all kind of mean the same things they're trying to tell amateur players who don't really understand how to evaluate whether a tournament structure is good or not you're going to get a lot of chips (laughs) they're just trying to hammer that point home so 
Uh, this time we're going to have another main event champion. So I don't know what's going to happen. But with that all said, I'm likely to play in this event. And being so close to New Jersey, I see no reason why I shouldn't just go over there and give it a shot. Especially knowing that if I happen to get so lucky as to get heads up that I could win an extra million dollars that I wasn't supposed to win in the first place. Now, I don't know what kind of turnout they're going to get. I think they'd be really happy if they get 2,000 players. So getting an extra million on what would normally be the prize for a main event with a $10,000 buy-in with 2,000 players in it, I think that would be pretty great. A very high percentage value add, if you will. So let's hear from you. Do you have intentions to play in the recently announced WSOP 2020 main event? on December 13th, 14th, and if you're really lucky, 28th. Uh, they also say that if you don't want to go to the Rio at the end of the month to play the final table, should you happen to get that far, then you can just accept ninth place money. They're not going to force anyone to go, but I think that anyone that has a shot at the world championship is probably going to find his or her way to the Rio that day. And they're going to do all types of COVID protocols. Players will be tested for the virus. And, you know, who knows? That's seven weeks from now. So maybe by then there will be even more news about the virus or the vaccine or whatever. I don't know how long all that's going to take. But they are going to protect us. You know, the worst PR disaster for Caesars Entertainment could be if they force people to go play in a poker tournament at the Rio and then they uh, end up contracting a deadly disease. So <laughs> we'll see uh, how it goes. But at least there will be poker on TV for us all to watch, or if we're really lucky, participate in uh, next month. So I think it's exciting, and I plan to join the fray. All right, so good news. I was able to solve the problem with my poker tracker software. And I do have hands from the $109 progressive knockout bounty event that I played uh, last month and won first place. Uh, I wanted to discuss this tournament on our last episode, but it just couldn't happen because of, uh, let's just say, technical ineptitude <laughs> or technical difficulties on my part. Uh, but yeah, I have a couple of hands. In each of these hands, I have ace-jack, and that's just a coincidence, but these were two hands from kind of the middle stages of the tournament that I thought were interesting or important for different reasons. So let's take a look at my first ace-jack hand. Uh, okay, so in this one, I had actually just been moved to a new table. This is shortly after the close of registration in the tournament we're probably about 70 or 80 spots away from the money um, at this point i had collected a few bounties i was doing great uh, the average stack was six hundred fifty thousand. now that sounds really high but this tournament they start you with i think two hundred thousand. i don't know why acr does this but when you play in the knockout events the pkos they always beef up your starting stack for whatever reason. Uh, there must be some logic to it. I just don't know what that is. So anyway, we uh, we have 990,000, so almost a milli, and the average is 650. And uh, all the tables in this event are eight-handed. It's an eight-handed tournament. And so uh, the blinds are 7,000 and 14,000 with uh, 1,750 ante for each player um i love these odd numbers they use <laughs> anyway uh, that means our m is 30 we have about 70 big blinds if you prefer and we're under the gun holding ace jack suited ace jack of diamonds um you could fold especially given that it's a brand new table we don't have reads on our opponents no one we recognize here it would be fine, actually. I think you're not giving up that much EV to just fold here. 
you know, your M is 30, you 50% higher than an average stack. It's not necessary for you to get involved in situations where you might put yourself in tough spots. Just to let you know how close it is for me, if we were at a 10-handed table and everything were the same, including my stack size, and I were under the gun with the ace jack of diamonds, I would fold without a second thought at a 10-handed table. Now, I know that sounds a little tight to many of you, and even to the solvers that are out there, game theory suggests that we should be playing these kind of medium-strength suited Broadway hands from early position, but in my experience, especially in the 50 or $100 buy-in levels on ACR, it is not very profitable to play marginal hands from up front. There's a ton of three betting in these tournaments. There are a lot of really aggressive players. Uh, you're going to be in some really horrible spots where he's going to three bet you small and then you have to call and see a flop from out of position in an inflated pot with a marginal hand. So I tend to err on the side of avoiding those spots. In a full ring, I am shockingly tight in early position. Uh, so like I say, if I'm at a 10-handed table, I would pretty much always fold ace-jack of diamonds. At a nine-handed table, it would depend on a variety of factors, like how many short stacks behind me, uh, if I recognize anyone, if it's a tough table, it's an easy fold. If it's a average table, it's 50, 50. Uh, but here at an eight handed table, I thought I can go ahead and play. This is actually the third hand I've seen at this table. So I really don't have any meaningful reads at all on my opponents, but it's the first hand I've played at this table and I have everyone at my table covered. So ace-jack of diamonds under the gun. I go ahead and min-raise to open. Um, min-raising online still seems to be very common. You could definitely make a case for raising a little bigger, discouraging action, not wanting to get too many calls, especially because I do have a lousy position. Um, you, know, you could make that case if you want. I just go ahead and min-raise my entire range. Yeah, I just open to 28,000. The next two players fold, and so now the cutoff, who has about 570,000 chips, decides to call, and everyone else folds. So we're going to see a flop. We're going to be out of position against an unknown opponent that we have covered, and we have ace-jack of diamonds. So there's 91,000 in the pot, and the effective stack is about 550. The flop comes ace of hearts, 10 of spades, tray of hearts. So ace, 10, tray with two hearts, hero with the ace, jack of diamonds. So now I could certainly continuation bet here, and probably that is the standard play. We flop top pair, but it's pretty vulnerable with the uh, hearts out there and possible gut shots. We don't want to give a free card to an opponent that's holding something like King Jack or whatever. Uh, it will give him a free card to uh, make a straight on us. That would be bad. We also have a pretty distinct range advantage here being the under the gun razor and now an ace high flop. So we're probably supposed to bet this flop a lot. Uh, I decide to check, and my reasons for doing so are, number one, I want to protect my checking range overall. So in other words, what I mean by that is if I always bet this flop when I have an ace and always check when I don't, or vice versa, then it's pretty easy to read from my opponent's in-position standpoint, well, if Clayton bets, I can fold, and if he checks, I can bet and steal the pot. So you need to mix it up a little bit more than that, and sometimes checking a top pair hand, even a vulnerable one. Also, without any read on my opponent, I would generally assume that he's going to be a loose, aggressive player because that's what most of the players are in this $100 tournament. So I expect him to take a stab a lot when I check which allows me to pick up a few extra chips from a player 
that would probably have folded if I bet. So in other words, if he is going to fire here with a gut shot, if he has something like Queen Jack, King Queen, these kind of hands, they really don't have anything, just a gut shot. And if I check, I'll say, you know what? I might as well turn this hand into a nice little semi-bluff here, especially when he has a heart. Say he has like King of Hearts, Queen of Clubs. You know, in his shoes, I would probably fire if the under the gun raiser checked as well. So I'm giving him a chance to do that. I'm trying to induce a mistake from my opponent. So I go ahead and check my top pair and he does take the bait. He fires 68,000 into the 91,000 pot. And now I have a decision. I can check raise this if I want to and still manage to deny him whatever equity he has with his gut shot slash backdoor flush draw slash whatever else he may have. Um, the danger in doing that is if my opponent continues, I will be out of position in what is now a very inflated pot. And my hand, once he calls the check raise, is actually pretty marginal for the situation. It's just an ace with a jack kicker. So for that reason, and because I don't have any back doors to fall back on, other than, well, I do have backdoor Broadway cards, I suppose. Um, but, I mean, I don't have a backdoor flush draw to fall back on. That means, for me, I don't want to raise him here. I don't know how this guy plays. I don't know what he's capable of, what he's not capable of. And I just don't want to be out of position trying to figure all that out here when I already have a, a nice, healthy chip stack. And I really just don't need to put myself in that kind of situation for such a large percentage of my stack. So for all those reasons, I just call. Um, there is a case to be made for check raising. You do deny him whatever equity he may have um, if you check raise big enough to get him to fold those hands. I mean, he's never going to fold a flush draw. I mean, I guess if you check shove, he might fold a flush draw, but then you lose a ton of chips when you run into something like three tens. So it's better not to, in my opinion. So I just call and we're going to see a turn now with 227,000 in the middle and the effective stack around 480. The turn is the six of hearts. So our board is now ace 10 tray with two hearts and then six of hearts. So the flush got there. So if our opponent bet on the flop with a flush draw, he now has a flush and we are drawing dead. So that's the worst case scenario, but worth mentioning. So here on this card, I mean, I suppose you could lead, you could do the old, what they used to call the Johnny Chan. I'm not exactly sure why, but it's a check call lead play, which is, so I checked and called on the flop and now this turn card, which may be as scary for my opponent as it is to me. Uh, I just go ahead and put in a, a good sized, healthy bet here on the turn and usually get him to fold his range. I don't like it though, because I still feel like there are a lot of hands that I'm ahead of. So I don't really want to blow him out of the pot. With that in mind, I check again. And now my opponent bets 170,000 into the 227,000 pot. So another very healthy bet. I mean, remember, he fired 68 into 91 on the flop, which is about 70, 72%, I guess. And now here on the turn, he's betting about the same percentage again. So this guy's not really fooling around here. He's putting in big bets, and he only has another 300 behind. So... Uh, it seems to me like he's getting committed to this pot, and I have to question why. I feel like without having any reads on my opponent, this is the type of marginal spot I like to avoid when I'm in a healthy position in a tournament like this one. I mean, yeah, you could say, well, Clayton, if you're good here and you can manage to get all in with him, you can collect another bounty, which is a consideration. Unfortunately, my software doesn't tell me how big his bounty was, but given that it's only the middle stages of the tournament, uh, I don't think it was all that high, but still something to consider because in a PKO, a full 
50% of the prize pool comes from collecting bounties, which is an argument for taking more risks. And I did. I did take plenty of risks in this tournament on my way to my first place finish. But this hand struck me as being, I just, I don't know what's going on here. I just sat down at this table. I watched two hands go by. And now this guy is firing these huge bets. Like he's trying desperately to get it all in. Of course it could be a bluff, right? He could still have that king of hearts, jack of spades. But given this sizing, that's the best case scenario for me. In all likelihood, he's got ace 10, a flush, a set, something like that. So I decided to let it go right here. I certainly would have called a smaller bet. And you can say, well, Clayton, that's really exploitable. If you fold to big bets and call smaller ones, that's exploitable. And you're right. On some level, that is exploitable. But if you take a macro look at poker in general, the way you make money in poker is by having a really big pot when you have a really big hand and having a really small pot when you have a really small hand. And that's oversimplifying to the nth degree. But in a macro sense, that is what we generally want to do. And the only reason to really deviate from that is for deception. So if this guy's deceiving me and I just got outplayed, that's fine. You know, I've got one pair and I'm willing to let it go and live to fight another day. And I'm really glad I did. Uh, well, I don't want to go forward yet, but let me just say, I would love to hear your thoughts on this hand. I know some of you are probably thinking, well, Clayton, you could have gotten out of this position by simply firing that continuation bet and keeping the lead in the pot. You know, by checking and playing passively post-flop, you allowed your opponent to take this pot away from you. And you know what, guys? If that's your take on this hand, you're absolutely right. I can't really argue with it, but I will say that in my experience on this site in similar tournaments, it doesn't happen that often. So in other words, generally what I was expecting on the turn is that my opponent will usually check behind. And in those times when I've been in similar spots and went to the river, he turns over the nuts at the end uh, a good percentage of the time. So uh, typically in a $100 buy-in on ACR, if a player is acting like he has the nuts and risking his tournament life versus one of the tournament chip leaders in the process, 50 spots before we get into the money, that guy's got the nuts. <laughs> so I just threw it away. But let me know what you think. The Twitter is at Clayton Comic. Let me know your thoughts on this hand and am I just a wimp and a pushover and should I have duked it out and let him show me the bad news. So uh, yeah, I almost said before, I'm glad that I made this fold because just a few hands later, uh, I ended up getting into a pre-flop all in with a uh, relatively short stack player and I had suited ace king versus his ace ace and uh yeah the six percent didn't happen so i lost that one and that put me uh, right around average a little higher uh yeah it took me down to six hundred fifty thousand. so i lost a third of my stack there so if i would have lost a lot more chips in this pot then i would have really been in bad shape after running my ace king suited into pocket aces so, uh, yeah, as it stood, possibly because I made a good fold there or just took the cautious line, uh, I still had a, a slightly above average stack at 650000 My M was 18, and I had 50 big blinds. And then ace-jack again. So this is just a few hands, maybe one orbit after the other ace-jack hand that we just reviewed. Blinds are the same, still 7,000, 14,000 with that weird 1750 ante. Uh, I'm in third position now, so two folds to me, and this time we have Ace of Spades, Jack of Hearts. Uh, again, I just open the minimum here. I do mix it up just occasionally, make it two and a half, but I really don't see a strong case for going any bigger than that, or really even bigger than the minimum, to be honest. This time I get three callers, and two of them 
have me covered. So it's a very different scenario from the one we had before. So uh, the cutoff calls, the button calls, and now he's the villain from the other hand. So he's in this pot as well. And the big blind who actually has us covered calls as well. So that's a lot. Um, there's 133,000 in the pot. We have 615 behind. The cutoff has 575 behind. So we've got him barely covered. And the other two players have us covered. The button, who again is the villain from the previous hand that we talked about, he's got 740. And the big blind has 1.2 million. So four of us see a flop. Again, we have ace-jack offsuit. And the flop comes queen of spades, 10 of diamonds, tray of clubs. So queen, 10, tray, rainbow, so we have an overcard and a gut shot to the nuts. Uh, the big blind checks to us and we check. Now we were the pre-flop raiser. Is this a spot for a continuation bet? Um, I suppose continuation betting is okay. Uh, I opted not to because I just find that on a flop with two Broadway cards and you have three opponents... It's just unlikely that, that continuation bet is going to take it down. And then things can get even more awkward when we make a pair on the turn. So if it comes an ace or a jack on the turn, we would now have one pair with a gut shot. And that's fine, but how much do we like our hand? And why do we want to inflate the pot at that point? So, and I just think that the likelihood of anything positive really coming from a continuation bet into these three opponents is greatly outweighed by the chances that it's probably just going to result in us losing that continuation bet and maybe more. So, yeah, I didn't I didn't really want to uh, fire here. I'm hoping it checks through so that we can just get a free shot at a king for the nuts. So that's my cockeyed optimism coming into play. Uh, instead, the cutoff... Bets 33,000 into 133,000. A tiny, tiny bet here. And the other two opponents fold. So maybe I should have C bet on this flop. <laughs> uh, yeah, in retrospect. Um, so what, what do we make of this? I mean, the fact that he's betting at all into three opponents on this board is somewhat an indication of strength, right? I mean, he wouldn't just bet with absolutely nothing. But the sizing to me is is just, it's irresistible. I mean, he's offering me almost five to one and I have a gut shot to the nuts and I also have an overcard, which may or may not be live. So in other words, if he's making this bet with king, queen, right? That's a hand that could easily be in his range here. Uh, then I can even win if an ace hits the board. So... Even though we're not exactly sure what to make of this, we're not folding. Not getting this price and not with this draw. So I call. Uh, check raising, by the way, is also an option. And remember, this is the opponent that we actually have covered. So you know, maybe a small check raise. He made a small bet, 33 into 133. We could give ourselves a good price to take it down, especially now that the other two opponents are out of the pot. We could again assert our dominance here, having been the pre-flop raiser, we do have a nuts advantage. I mean, I think we have a lot more queen-queen in our range than this guy does, right? And we might play it this way with a check raise or what have you. Uh, I think it's certainly fine to to go for it here. Maybe check raise to like 99. He said 33. Just go 3x. Give yourself that really attractive price. So if we put in 99 and he's only got like a pair of 10, something like ace-10... I think we might be able to take it down here, which is great. And we still have, whatever he does, we still have outs to the nuts. So that's totally fine. I just took the lower variance route and just took the price he was offering, calling, getting almost five to one and closing the action. So uh, the pot is now 200,000 and the effective stack is 540. Now, I should mention, I probably should have mentioned earlier, this is the first pot that this player has entered. I've seen, I think, nine hands, ten hands at this table. And this is the first hand that he's played. So I remember thinking, 
he was a little bit tighter than average at this table. So that also factored into my decision making as far as not wanting to check raise because I think that he is more likely than average to have a monster given his relative tightness uh, so far in the very, very few hands I've seen at this table. I'm not putting too much stock in that, but it did enter my thinking. So I wanted to mention it here. All right. So with 200,000 in the pot, the effective stack uh, 540,000, that's my opponent's stack. And I barely have him covered with my stack of 570, 580, excuse me. The turn is the four of hearts. So do we want to do a check call lead here? Uh, it's fine, but what are we really representing, right? I mean, what do you check call? And then we suddenly wake up when the four hits. Are we representing pocket fours there? I don't know. Uh, I, I gave a little bit of consideration to betting, but because I just think it doesn't really represent very much, I decided to go ahead and check again and hoping beyond hope that my opponent will check and give me another free shot at that king or possibly a blank that I can then bluff on the river because like how much strength is he really showing by betting 20% of the pot on the flop and then checking back heads up on the turn. So I would very often bluff the river if he checks back on the turn. So it does check through. And so now I'm starting to think I need to make a plan for winning this pot, which seems to be available all of a sudden. And the river is the jack of diamonds, giving me a pair on a board of queen, 10, tray, four jack. So I now have second pair with an ace kicker. Uh, I also had to consider that I have so much more ace king than he does. My opponent has to be concerned that I just rivered the nuts given the way I've played the hand. Still, I decided to check and my plan is to call. I think that given the way my opponent has played this hand, he's going to show up here with ace 10 a lot. And I don't think that he'll call a bet if I make one given that his hand is now reduced to third pair on a relatively scary board. So I just didn't feel like I had a value bet here. In order to have a value bet, you have to have a hand that can beat your opponent's hand, but he still has to call. And so I just didn't really think I could squeeze much more juice out of this orange by betting. So my only hope, therefore, is to check. And I'm hoping that he turns his hand, whatever it is, into a bluff. And I'm, I'm thinking he's got something like ace 10, king 10, possibly even a pair below a 10, like pocket nines or something. I suppose those hands could be in his range for betting so small on the flop. But I don't know. I just, it just feels like a 10 a lot to me. So I'm just hoping it's not jack 10 because I'm planning to pay off a river bet. So I check and fortunately for me, my opponent checks behind and turns over King 10 off suit. So my instincts were right. He did have a 10 and his play is pretty consistent with having a 10. Betting pretty small on the flop and then not putting any more chips in on the turn. So uh, I win a pretty nice pot here against an opponent that I thought was pretty tight. And then he turns out to have King 10 off suit and called from worst relative position. So <laughs> what do I know? Uh, that just goes to show you don't want to put too much stock into a read you have after eight or nine hands. You really need to build up a profile on your opponents before you start making major decisions based purely on an extremely unreliable read. So let me know what you guys think about these two hands. At Clayton Comic on Twitter, always love to hear from you guys. My DMs are open, but I do prefer you tweet publicly so that we can all discuss the action together. Do you like my lines? Would you have checked this river planning on calling? Or do you think I do have a value bet? Uh, you know, and in the first hand, what are your thoughts on how cautiously I handled that ace-jack suited? Also, share your thoughts on the upcoming World Series of Poker main event, December edition. I believe the first time it's ever been held in December. Uh, and, of course, the match between Doug and Daniel. Let me know what you think of all of these things and anything else on Twitter at Clayton Comic. 
And also, if you're still looking for a poker training and coaching site, may I humbly suggest tournamentpokeredge.com. We've got thousands of hours of unbelievable educational videos from some of the greatest minds in poker, Colin Moshman, Andrew Brokus, Alex Fitzgerald. You guys know the names. For as little as $25 a month, you can have access to all of our materials, including our forums where we discuss hands we played similar to the ones that I mentioned here on the podcast. So check that out at tournamentpokeredge.com. And for everyone here at TPE, I'm Clayton Fletcher. Thank you guys so much for listening.